welcome to the International Association of Business Communicators Amina Region podcast. This is Monique Zidnik. Well, there's been a lot of great research that has come out over the past year, and we thought that we'd get some different perspectives for an engaging discussion. And on the table, we've got the Break Free, Be the Change AB Communications Leader Survey by our very own IABC, Katie McCauley and Mike Klein, and the IAC 2023 Index, which was recently released by the Institute of Internal Communication, to name a few. So I'd like to introduce you to two prominent IABC AMENA Region members, Dr. Kevin Ruck and Mike Klein, who will be sharing their perspectives. Dr. Kevin Ruck is the co-founder of PR Academy, which is the largest chartered Institute of Public Relations accredited teaching centre. Not only is he the editor and co-author of the leading textbook, Exploring Internal Communication, but he has also written numerous academic journals and chapters and is a member of the editorial advisory board for the Journal of Communication Management not one to rest on his laurels. Kevin has just completed another book co-authored with Mike Pounceford and Howard Kreis, who have both been on um, previous IABC Amina podcasts. And their book is called Leading the Listening Organisation, Creating Organisations that Flourish. This will be released by Rutledge in 2024. And Kevin is based in London. So our other guest, Mike Klein, is a internal and social communication consultant based in Iceland. But like many of our globetrotting members, he has lived and worked in many countries, including Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands and the US. And I'm sure we'll all agree that Mike's superpower is super connecting. That is identifying people who he thinks are worth introducing to each other and then getting them introduced. So Mike is the founder of We Lead Comms and is a prolific writer and speaker. So welcome, Kevin, and welcome, Mike. Thank you very much. Thank you. So we're here to make sense of the latest research that has come out, and I know that this will be an engaging discussion, especially because I happen to know that there are some divergent views here. And I think we've worked out that there is one thing that we definitely have in common between both of you, and that is the fact that you're both longtime Tottenham Football Club supporters. Indeed. I became a Tottenham supporter when I went to business school in the late 90s. And I have suffered and raptured and enjoyed and complained about Spurs, you know, for the last 25 plus years. And we'll continue to do so. And Kevin? I think Mike and I are fellow sufferers in the cause. Yeah, no, I, I've been a, I'm a season ticket holder. Went to my first game when I was 16. Yeah, we're ever hopeful. Okay, so let's jump in then and stake our flags in the sand. So, Kevin, what is your background and your interest in research? Well, I think, first of all, Monique, I wanted to say thank you for bringing us together because um, I think you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, we probably wouldn't have been having this conversation, right? Simply because there is so much more research out there on internal communication. And and that's a joy to me anyway. So my interest really is I have 20 plus years in practice working in internal communication, but I then took a different path. I decided I was going to go into teaching, became a qualified teacher, and then set up PR Academy and have been teaching internal communication for what the last 15 years, I think it is or so. 
So I'm the course leader for the PR Academy's delivery of the Chartered Institute of Public Relations Internal Communication Diploma. It's a course that I designed and we're constantly updating it. And I, you know, I think for me, I want to base that course and qualification on teaching practitioners solid, theoretically underpinned principles and models for effective and for ethical internal communication practice. And of course, if we're going to be talking about, you know, establishing internal communication as a profession that's recognised through qualifications in organisations, and I hope we probably agree that that's a good thing, then, you know, I, I would want to say that we need to base that teaching on something that's robust. And that's why I have that interest in, in the research. And of course, I did my PhD, completed back in 2016. And before that, I confess, I was not really very much of a researcher, but the whole process, I had to learn how to do multiple regression um, analysis. And believe you me, that was a real struggle for someone who doesn't come from a, a mathematics or statistics background at all. But you know, going through that process and also doing a qualification in business research methods enabled me to have a, you know, a closer look at the research that is uh, done out there. And I think we're now in a situation where there is so much more research, uh, which is always good. And no research is necessarily bad, right? All research is good. As my PhD supervisor, Mary Welsh, said to me, you know, it's all good, Kevin. You know, it's, just, it's just that some is based on more sort of solid underpinning than others. And we're now in that situation, thankfully, that there is so much attention um, and so much more research out there. So I think this does lead on then to the question and, and this, the discussion we're having today, which is, you know, how do you judge or assess the quality of that research that is produced? And that, of course, brings us into our research methodology. And I'm not sure if we'll get onto it today, but if we want to, we could also get into the philosophy behind research methods. And I love doing that part of my PhD. I'm a critical realist philosopher and that underpins my thinking. Maybe we can talk about what that means a little bit later. But anyway, that's my background and interest. Well, I look forward to getting onto those topics, Kevin. I um, my, my little secret background is I come from a science background. So I love the research and, and studied research methodology at university as well. So Yes, would love to jump into those discussions with you and also Mike. Mike, where's your flag in the sand? Well, I actually have a research background of my own. I started out with my first job at the age of 16 as a market research interviewer in Chicago. And, you know, I had also at the time been very interested in politics, largely because I was crappy at sports and got involved in local political campaigns when I was 14. So after, you know, during and after university, I moved into a political consulting career, which I did for about 10 years in the States. And among the things that I did was oversaw political survey research and conduct qualitative research, focus groups, depth interviews and the like. And I think where, where Kevin and I diverge is that Yes, there is a certain robustness to statistical validity and the statistical analysis and having statistically valid samples. I mean, if you're trying to predict the outcome of an election, then you need that because that demonstrates the credibility of what you're doing. But if you're trying to influence the outcome of an election or try to influence the outcome of a business initiative or a change program or, you know, even, you know, being able to 
accentuate the, you know, certain behaviors in employee population. You don't necessarily need to do a shed load of regression analysis to do it. You need to collect data that moves your leadership or that surfaces language that resonates with employees and then be able to use that research to act upon. So I don't dismiss, you know, the academic side and the academic rigor of it, but at the same time, it could be quite intimidating and off-putting for people who don't have academic backgrounds, who don't have statistical competence. I don't have statistical competence. And, you know, I decided not to let that stop me to a large extent because, and I'm seeing it with the people that I teach uh, my measurement courses to, they think it makes a difference. And they're even reporting back that it's making a huge difference in the work that they do. I think you've touched on a really interesting point there, Mike, about the purpose of the research sailing forth to like with all comms to stop and think, are you trying to influence? Are you trying to gather data? What is the purpose of the research? But Mike, how about we go to some of the research that you released last year about global communication leaders and how does this relate to sort of some of the more research that's come out? Well, I mean, what I did last year was working with um, Katie McCauley at AB and also doing this under the flag of the We Lead Comms campaign, which is an initiative to recognize courage, leadership, and initiative among communication practitioners and leaders. The idea was to basically figure out what's on people's minds. So this research doesn't claim to represent the entire community of communication leaders. It represents the community of communication leaders who showed up and completed the survey. So it's not, you know, it doesn't pretend to speak to the entire population, but of people who cared enough to do it, there were some certainly some very interesting trends around the continuing saga of getting leaders to pay attention to internal communication and internal communicators and communication professionals in general. Concern about technology, concern about you know various cultural and macroeconomic factors that were affecting the industry. It involved about 155 people. And I think the story that it puts together or that it put together at the time, you know, illustrated what people were dealing with in this field and how they saw the opportunities for growth and change emerging. So it doesn't pretend to speak for the entire industry necessarily. Just quickly for our listeners who might not have read the research, were there one or two top highlights that you wanted to share with them, some of the insights that you... I think the top insight was the persistent issue of communication leaders having to convince the managers and senior leaders in their organizations of the value and the need for resources, and most importantly, the need for permission to be able to do what needs to be done in the realm of internal communication, to address the persistent myths that exist about it. Um, Some of you may have seen an article that I wrote this week about what I call the six half myths pervading internal communication, or I should say the article that I wrote last month about the half myths that are pervasive, particularly among managers and leaders around internal communication. You know, other sides of it are, as I mentioned, the technology issue and also, you know, certain macroeconomic and cultural factors in their own organizations that need to be overcome for communication to truly be effective. Your thoughts, Kevin? 
Yeah, no, I, I was just reflected on those insights, Mike. And of course, it's a, it's a perennial issue that we find, certainly when I talk to my students on the courses that I teach, you know, this point about, you know, convincing or, or having to convince senior leaders about, you know, their advice is something that comes up and has been around for a long, long time. I suppose where I come from on that is, it's, um, I come back to the, the whole professionalization, if you like, of internal communication. Because I think until senior leaders start to see the work of internal communication uh, from a more strategic perspective, until they do that, then they're always going to have a debate. Sort of, you know, like you might say, oh, I think we should do this. The senior leader goes, I'm not sure about that. And it turns into a little, little discussion or debate. Whereas if you can base your advice on credible evidence, and also you can, the profession itself is established as a more strongly recognised um, important strategic function that then you wouldn't even start to get into these debates I, I would say but of course that's a big heavy problem okay we're not going to solve that overnight but it is at the core of what I believe in which is doing uh, research that does lead into that establishment of um, internal communication as an evidence-based you know research-led function so it's not just down to what you know one internal communication manager might think or say it's based on solid evidence. But like I say, you know, we've been talking about this for a very, very long time. I mean, just on the point, you, you asked a question, Monique, at the beginning of this um, this segment, really, about what's the purpose of the research? So, so I think that's an important question because you can do research for, from a number of different perspectives. So from an academic perspective, you want to be doing research that establishes theory. And of course, yes, Mike is absolutely right. A lot of the journal articles that you see written are very arcane, are very kind of technical, and they're not very accessible, either in the language they use, or actually, you know, you have to buy the journal article from behind a paywall. So there's, there are issues there about that. But I, I do think that it's an important process that leads into theory building and knowledge building. But then, so there's that purpose. And then there's a second purpose of kind of like research that helps inform practitioners to help them to do the work that they're doing. That, and that's a very important approach too. And I think that the research that Mike done, you know, has done recently is, is very useful in that regard. I don't think you have to do research that necessarily is based on huge sample sizes so that it's generalizable to the whole, you know, communication population. It, it doesn't matter. I, you know, all research is interesting and useful. And, and if it was based on 100 or so, you know, communication managers, that's, that's a really good piece of research. So but with the aim of kind of informing and helping practitioners. So but my, my point here is really that they, we shouldn't have these two different perspectives. You know, we, there should be a symbiotic relationship between academic research that informs practice and practitioners doing research that helps inform the research agenda for the academics. And I have to say, one of my regrets, you know, in the 20 plus years that I've been sort of working in and teaching and researching internal communication. There isn't that coming together of those two communities. I'm really, really delighted to see the increase in academic research. But I think there's this room for that, you know, coming together to happen in a much more organised way. And I must say the work that Professor Rita Men is doing at the um, University of Florida, and she's just established um, the Internal Communication Research Hub, which is a delight to me to see because it's, it's a step in the right direction of getting that that community building between practitioners and academics together. And it's, it's also worth noting that both Kevin and I have been selected as internal communication thought leaders, practitioner thought leaders, to be among a group of practitioners 
who are matched with a group of academics as part of the University of Florida's hub. So I'm thrilled about that, even though it might cause me to root against my favorite Southeast Conference team, the Arkansas Razorbacks. I want to touch on a couple of things that, that Kevin says. One is about the conversation between communicators and managers. And I just have a very basic analogy. Um, many of us as children played the game rock, scissors, paper, where you have a, an extended hand as a sheet of paper, a pair of scissors that, cuts, that could cut the paper, but also a rock that could break the scissors. What I try to do in my courses, and I think what Kevin is trying to do in a more macro level with the academic research, is recognize that the communication person's position is that of a piece of paper with the manager being the scissors. If the communicator does not have data, the manager's scissors will invariably slice the paper. But data is what makes the paper into a rock. And so what I want to do is arm the people that I work with to bulk, you know, to bulk themselves up so that they can be a rock, so that they can you know, break some of the myths that, we, that exist about what we do. And I think the, the issue that Kevin brought up in terms of all research being helpful. I think research itself, you know, you can't go wrong by researching something. Where you can become problematic is in overdriving the research with an analysis that's overly generous or overly optimistic. And that's where I became rather agitated about the recent internal communication index that was produced by Carrion and Box, which is a, a firm in London that does a lot of employee engagement surveys and you know, has a lot of very mainstream clients and also the Institute of Internal Communication. And some of the interpretations that they made in that report, in my opinion, really overdrove the research that they actually did. They were looking at the views of 3,000 UK employees and what their preferences were around internal communication. I had two fairly major beefs, well, three fairly major beefs with it. One, there was no qualitative element to it. So a lot of the numbers could be interpreted in a certain way and without any backup context, the report led in a certain direction that I don't think that the research supports. Second, in presenting the overall view of internal communication, they said that because a certain percentage of responses rated internal communication or communication activities seven or above, they decided that was excellent. I don't know about you, but when I go on TripAdvisor and go on Booking, I don't look for the sevens. I look for the eights and aboves. And I would suspect that if we were looking at people looking at internal comms, the percentage giving it eight and above would be a lot lower than those giving it seven or above. And then the third beef that I had was that in asking employees what their preferences were in terms of media and in terms of channels, there are a lot of new channels out. There's a lot of new technology. There's a lot of great technology out that people aren't familiar with. And the language they used to describe that technology, very generic language, was not something that would necessarily produce an appropriate response. And I mean, that's, there's a certain amount of self-interest there. I work with technology in communication technology companies. And I spug out not because I necessarily queried the research itself, but the implications I thought could make things more difficult for those of us who are trying to make a difference in the profession. Kevin, your thoughts? Well, I think um, Mike's raised three very valid 
you know, observations there. You know, there, there was no qualitative element to that report. The scoring question, I think, Mike does make a very good point. It's a, it's a I would say, not a that significant a point. I mean, when we um, mark student assignment work from in the UK, seventy and over is an excellent percent. So, I mean, I think you know you can argue the toss around those scoring points, but I agree that eight and nine would be, in most people's kind of estimation, excellent. And sort of six or seven would probably be very good or something. So I, I think it's a bit of a point. And the, the point about channels and language, yeah, of course, I think, you know, there, there's room for the questions to have included a wider range of, you know, more topical or, or better, you know, using better language for the platforms and systems that are out there. I, don't, I think all, all of those are valid points. But my, from my perspective, and every piece of research out there, you can find something that could have been done differently or improved or the analysis, you know, was maybe over, over egged a little bit, you know, in places. I think every piece of research is prone to those criticisms. Uh, from my perspective, what I like about that report is it is based on employees. So a lot of the research that we see in the consultancy practitioner field um, is based on, you know, our work with communication managers. I mean, and I hold my hands up, you know, the whole of the, the Who's Listening reports and the book that I'm writing with, with Mike Pouncewood and Hal Crace is based on research, quantitative and qualitative, that we conducted with communication managers over three or four years. And there's a good reason for that, because it's difficult to get access to um, large numbers of employees inside organisations. So that's the reason why, you know, you don't see a lot of that research. In the academic space, you do. If you if you look at academic journals, a lot of them are based on research with employees. And I think there's an important point here. You know, if we're talking about what is good internal communication practice, or if we want to understand what employees think and feel about internal communication, then we better ask employees, right? <laughs> you know, I, I think that gives that that element a robustness. The other thing is, three thousand is a good number. Yeah, so if, if you're talking about a sizable population, then that brings the uh, margin of error down to small numbers. I think there are a number of plus points, and I, I think you know we have to look at the, the research in the round, and I, and I think that was a valuable piece of research that contributed to our understanding and knowledge in a number of ways. Right. I'm not querying the research itself. I'm querying the interpretation as being overly positive in a way that I think could breed complacency, particularly in the UK um, internal comms community. I mean, that much being said, I like the Institute of Internal Communication. I finally joined last month. So, you know, I'm hardly an opponent of the Institute, but I also think that there's, you know, room for a bit more self-criticism among those of us in the profession. And I think it's Kevin's right you know, our ability to surface the views of employees. Now, when I teach my measurement courses, I'm teaching people how to conduct research with their employees. So I'm not, you know, my aim isn't for us to have a conversation among ourselves about how great or frustrated we are. But at the same time, having that conversation helps me develop content so that we can actually address some of these issues. I just wanted to touch on one of the things you mentioned, Mike, about the technology and sort of how the questions are phrased. As consultants, any internal, any comms consultant, anyone 
working within the organisation or with clients outside of the organisation, asking the right questions is one of the biggest skills and biggest challenges. How do you know that you're asking the right questions in the right way for your research? Well, from a qualitative perspective, I start by asking the most generic questions possible to see what yields, you know, what insights are yielded from that. I mean, one of the challenges with closed-ended questions is they already presuppose what the answers are because, you know, they suggest multiple choice or scale answers, linear scale answers. And so, like, my default question, I call it the magic question to contrast with magic numbers like employee engagement scores or employee net promoter scores. The magic question is just simply, what are the top three priorities facing your organization? And when you ask that question, A, you get a reflection of whatever the organization's so-called strategic priorities or their vision, their mission, their purpose, what have you, but also the most salient things on the employee agenda or the most salient things on the manager agenda. By asking that very generic question, you can unearth a lot of insights that then guide more specific questions and also more specific strategies. And Kevin, what kind of approach or tips do you have in making sure that the right questions are asked in the right way to get uh, valid answers? I think this is a research methodology question, Monique, and I think so my answer to the question is really you start with your research objectives. If you don't have research objectives, then, then you've got no framework for doing whatever the research is, and that applies equally to qualitative as it does to quantitative. So you start with research objectives for, in the first place. Um, I think the, the on you know um, survey design, I, I must you know mention something here because I, I think anyone thinks they can design a survey. <laughs> it's a bit like people in internal communication moaning that you know anyone thinks they can do communication, right? And so survey design is, is a capability in itself. And I do see even in some reputable studies, some quite basic errors <laughs> in asking questions. So for example, if, if you're a hotel and you wanted to um, do a survey to assess how well um, your guests thought the reception duties or the reception service was, you could ask a question which which says rate your satisfaction with reception duties at check-in and check-out. Now that's a classic example of a double-barreled question because as a guest you could be happy with the check-in facilities services and really unhappy with the, the service you got when you checked out. And this is a common error and of course it completely invalidates any data that you generate from that uh, question. So in terms of asking the right questions for a survey make sure none of your questions are double or even triple barreled questions, which I do see as well. Um, and then, of course, leading questions, which is, you know, obviously sometimes you want to, you're looking for an answer, so avoiding leading questions, test the questions, do pilot, you know, um, pilot work to see that people are understanding and interpreting the questions in the way that you intended them to be, to, to be checked. But on qualitative, I absolutely agree with Mike. When it gets down to, you know, talking to um, employees, either in interview situations or focus groups, which, which I've done a lot, it's not necessarily the opening question or the opening question can be quite broad. It's best to be quite broad. It's usually the prompts and the way that you encourage people to open up. And I'm a big fan of just um, using several prompts. Is there anything else you'd like to say? And even when you've gone around the room a couple of times, you add it again, is, is there anything else? And it's only when you get into that prompting, when you're really 
beginning to surface some of the um, sort of, you know, the insights that are, are more in the subconscious. So, yeah, lots of, th- I mean, but we don't want to get too detailed. We could get really into complicated stuff about research design here. But from a point, I, my, my, I suppose my general feedback on that is, you know, don't think you can just design a survey uh, because you've done a few yourself. I, I think, you know, really, this is an expertise that you, you do need to have someone advise you on. Well, that, I, there's something that I really want to pick up on what Kevin said, which is about asking leading questions. Because if there's a single factor that has caused irreparable um, frustration and distraction and, you know, for that matter, even career destruction in this field, it's been the reliance on employee engagement surveys as a measurement of internal communication. There's one survey out there called the Gallup Q12, which is kind of, or at least has been kind of considered an almighty internal employee engagement survey. And many internal communicators have been measured on the basis of their company's Q12 process, Q12 results. Two basic problems. As Kevin says, first thing you do is don't ask leading questions. At least six of the 12 questions in the Q12 are flat out leading questions. At work, do you have the opportunity to do what you do best every day? I guess my personal favorites, are your associates committed to doing quality work? If you've got a psychological safety issue in your organization and you're not really 100% convinced of the confidentiality of the survey, are you gonna give that question a three? Maybe you give it a seven because you can't stomach the idea of giving it a 10. That's one of the reasons why I also brought up the idea around the number seven. We like to say a seven is a polite three to a certain extent. Another question, does the mission or purpose of your company make you feel your job is important? You know, who is going to say no to that question? It's kind of like a North Korean election. You know, they may ask people, you know, do you vote for for the dear leader? And you may have two boxes on the ballot. But if you click no on that ballot, chances are they're going to take you outside. And that's how a lot of people feel about these surveys, even if we know a bit more about this process. So a lot of people in this field are being judged on the basis of performance against leading questions or against questions that they have no meaningful influence over. I mean, I'm, I'm no fan of the, um, the annual employee engagement survey, be it the Gallup 12 or, or, or any of the others that are commonly used. And I certainly don't believe any organisation that is judging the performance of its internal communication managers on the outcomes uh, from a general employee engagement survey is, is just barking completely up the wrong tree. I, I agree with Mike on the, the overuse of the employee engagement survey. Um, and of course, you know, um, I don't think we've got time to get into the whole employee engagement, you know, discussion. But um, so, you know, from my point of view, um, internal communication should have a method of assessing how well the internal communication it produces and delivers is achieving the outcomes that are set in the um, the strategy and plan that it has and how well those link to the overall success of the business. So that, that's where I come from. And, I, you know, my PhD research was, was certainly looking at which aspects of internal communication are most strongly correlated with business outcomes. And that's where we should be. I mean, I'm, some people say to me, oh, well, how can you say whether it's one thing or the other? You know, how can you say whether it's not, you know, successful businesses uh, you know, that leads into employees thinking their internal communication is good. Well, that's where qualitative research comes in. 
in my PhD uh, viva, I had an external examiner, uh, Professor Dennis Turish, who asked me that very question because in my thesis, I was suggesting certain correlations and associations between internal communication and lots of different business outcomes. And his question to me was in Aviva was, how do you know it's not the other way around, right? And I said, well, because when I did my qualitative research, I asked employees how they felt when a certain aspect of internal communication was done well, and they unprompted said it made them feel valued, a sense of belongingness with the organization. You know, this is the importance of combining. Most of the research that I do, I will try to do uh, mixed methods. I will try to do quantitative, and I will try to do that some form of qualitative research because I think they, they feed each other really. And I'm not necessarily saying you should do the quant first, which a lot of people say. You know, there's a good case for saying doing the qual first because you can get some insights and then you can test them through the quant. So yeah, the combination of the two, I think works really well for me. I like the idea of having practitioner and research driven standards for what good internal communication is. But I think we also need to be really cautious about the idea of benchmarking internal communication, particularly between organizations, because there's a certain fetish around external benchmarking. It's kind of like the locker room talk at the country club, the CEO saying, we've got an 82% engagement score. Well, we've got an 82.5, so we're better than you. You know, and the reality is that these two companies may be in different sectors, They might certainly have different workplace strategies, like we're seeing increasingly as a factor now hybrid work at turned office or remote based, what have you. All of these factors, you know, national culture, geographic spread, unionization, all of these factors make up an organization's culture. And being able to compare, say, ExxonMobil with BP makes no sense to a large extent. Because you've got two entirely different cultural contexts between two companies roughly operating in the same industry. So on the one hand, having you know some standards for practice and for conducting research may be more effective than having a giant norm against which we all compare ourselves. But what about things like intranet? read rates and some basic stats to just give the practitioners within the organisation an indication of how they're sitting compared to other organisations? Do you think there are some? Proceed with caution. You know, the issue there is obviously there's a lot of competition between vendors and they want to have, you know, some degree of ability to measure. And if, if you're a vendor across a big enough swath of clients and you're Comparing yourself to other vendors with comparable spread, maybe there's some validity to that. But companies use intranets for different things. They may use them as portals to HR information. They may use them solely as news sources. They may use them as channels for asynchronous conversations. If you're in a world where you're managing or at least influencing internal influence, you may be putting a lot more content out there that isn't intended for everybody to read. So one-on-one comparisons, even in that space, aren't necessarily too valid. Your thoughts, Kevin? Um, I agree with Mike, actually. I think we're in danger of agreeing with each other on almost every point in this in this <laughs> podcast. When I, you know, well, I, I'm happy with that myself, but uh, um, <laughs> I think um, benchmarking is, is fraught with all sorts of, um, you know, difficulties. And I, I don't, advise benchmarking. Having said that, 
if you don't benchmark right, how how do you set communication objectives that are measurable? That's the question. And of course, for me, that means you have to do what I would call formative research in your organisation, which sets the current situation. So, you know, it's specific to your organisation. You have a satisfaction level or whatever it may be. And you then can feed that into your communication plan and say, I'm going to improve that by X percent over the next 12 months. And this is how I'm going to do it. But if you can't, if you don't have the luxury, and some of my students say that, you know, they just don't have the luxury of, of conducting that formative research, so they don't know how, then how to set communication objectives. And then I do think that some of the, the data that's out there can be used, but like Mike says, with a lot of caution. Um, yeah, so I'm not a big fan of benchmarking, to, to be honest. Um, but, I, you know, I think this begs the, the, the sort of the bigger question, really, about coming back to the research agenda. And I, want, I wanted to just touch on that because I do think that the academic research agenda is useful here, not for providing practitioners with benchmark data, to be honest, because, you know, for all the reasons that, that the mic has already explained, but it's useful for understanding what are the principles that underpin effective internal communication that's for the benefit both of the organisation and for the employees who work there. And it's those principles, I mean, we, we may think we've got a good you know, grasp of what is good in ethical internal communication. But, you know, I was just doing a quick check before I came on to the podcast, you know, and, and, and I was looking at the, um, the number of academic journal articles that have been published in the Journal of Communication Management. So one of this, there's a number of, you know, uh, academic journals that are, are worth checking out. When I did a search, there were 1,359 academic journal articles with the, the term internal communication in the abstract. And sorry, this is the Public Relations Review. So I'll come on to the, the other journal in a minute. And in Public Relations Review journal, there were 4,522 articles with the terms public relations, not surprisingly within them. But what that suggests to me is there's a growing body of academic work that's being published in academic journals. But if you look at the Journal of Communication Management, I did the same thing. I, I did a run. There were one more than 1,000 journal articles on internal communication. But when you search for marketing within that journal, there were more than 49,000 journal articles on marketing. So what I'm trying to say is that I'm really delighted to see a lot more academic work being done. We need to make it more accessible because it does help practitioners in the end to understand what are good principles that should be used. But we're a million miles away from having a really extensive body of knowledge still in the work that we do. And yeah, with all that's already been said about accessibility and the, the, the jargon that's used and so on and so forth, that's where I think you know I'd like to see the, the world of internal communication become more uh, used to drawing on academic research that informs practice in a useful way. Mike, would you like to respond? And then I'm keen to jump in and hear from both of you what areas or topics we should be delving into a little more, because I know you've done some courage and research with Rita Men on this, Kevin, as well. So over to you, Mike. I think to build on that, I think it's great that more research is being done, but I think there is a yawning crisis level gap that the, that the profession faces. 
it's this chronic question of the value of internal communication. If the academic community wants to do practitioners and themselves a favor, they should probably be focusing a hell of a lot more on demonstrating the economic value of the work that we do. For two reasons. A, academic research in, that demonstrates that internal communication has financial benefits for organizations would make it a lot easier, you know, particularly just maybe two or three keystone studies that say, you know, you do this, you get this, or at least some that sharpens the relationship between, you know, IC and, and the bottom line. I think that would be hugely helpful. But I think also it would send a message to the funder world to say, look, internal comms is a research subject that is worthy of you know, broad level corporate and public investment, because this is something that can actually increase productivity, reduce friction, reduce you know, stress, what ha you know, and the concomitant medical costs of stress. There is a huge amount of money to be made as a result of establishing this connection. Academia is much better to set up to do this than practitioners are. And I think it's time that they need to focus on this. And I would personally also like to see some research on the value of being strategic rather than tactical. I can see you nodding there, Mike, with a big thumbs up. Thousand percent. And Kevin? Yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah, being strategic, what does that mean? And you know, um, more research that feeds into all of that. I, I think the issue we've got, to be frank, we don't have many universities in the world, <laughs> I'm talking on a global scale, that have got really big, well-established departments that are doing research into internal communication. That's the issue. The only way to get there is to try to convince business schools or deans or you know, chancellors of, of major universities that internal communication is a, a subject worthy of teaching and resourcing and research. But well, we're a long, a long way from getting, certainly in the UK, uh, we're a million miles away from being anywhere near to that. And that's, I think, comes back to the role, I think, of, of institutes, you know, such as the IABC and others. You know, how can they lobby um, big university departments to really focus more attention on the, on the whole subject of internal comms. And Kevin, I know that you've also identified some topics, like if there was more funding for universities on various topics to do with internal communications and communications more broadly, what would you pick? Where would you put your money? Yeah, that's a good question. It's, it's not an easy question to answer, actually, because academics often like to follow their own sort of knowledge and discovery and theory building um, for very good reasons and, and it's not always necessarily driven by the uh, productivity performance agenda which Mike raised earlier. Now, personally, you know, I would like, I agree with Mike, I think there should be much more attention on, on that. So there are all sorts of topics that I think are interesting, certainly the whole, you know, internal social media, the digital space, the hybrid working space, I think too is really important. And as you mentioned, Monique, the whole, you know, what is strategic or excellent internal communication? I think there are, there are um, articles on that, but there's not an extensive range. And we've got no established, you know, theory really about what excellence in internal communication actually is. And I would, you know, agree with Mike, that means linking excellence to business outcomes. But there are other people who may think, may have different kind of agendas, internal crisis communication, is certainly a topic that I'm interested in. 
you know, not many people have been doing research on, you know, internal crises. There's a lot, there's an extensive range of work being done on external crisis communication. But there's some good work being done now in the past 10 years on internal crisis communication, which is linked to change communication in many ways. So there are lots of different agendas here, but I'm, I do agree that we need to have something that firmly establishes the value of what internal communication does. But I wouldn't just say for the organisation, for employees too, that would be where I would be focused. I don't disagree with the focus on, on employees. As I mentioned, reducing the stress and ambiguity and the, the related medical issues due to workplace stress. But I think the two key things, as I mentioned, is A, the relationship between internal comms and economic impact. And I guess the second thing is you know, demonstrating which tactics, approaches, tools, whatever, have the highest or most efficient impact on organizations. You know, things like organizational network analysis, things like, you know, like internal survey research or internal qualitative research, finding the small things that make the biggest difference. Um, because that would be extremely helpful in overcoming executive resistance to these things, which may seem small practically and tactically, but may provoke fear of certain, you know, certainly in certain management quarters. Thank you, Mike. And what are you guys doing right at the moment? Kevin, I know that you've just about finished your book with the research on organisational listening. What are you currently researching? And Mike, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what your next steps are as well. So over to you first, Kevin. Thank you. Well, I'm, I'm in between projects, actually, right now. Um, I'm looking for a new research project, um, probably from the autumn of uh, this year. So my focus really is on leadership communication. That's where I'm interested to go next, really, on because I, I see a lot of lack of understanding at senior leader level inside organisations as to what internal communication is, yeah, as we've discussed already. So I would like to sort of focus much more attention on how leaders are effective internal communicators, not just themselves as individuals, but how they understand systems of internal comms and, and they lead the whole kind of implementation of successful internal communication strategies. So that leadership level communication is where I'm focused, but I'm, I'm open to uh, anyone thinking about doing a research project. Um, certainly I'm open to, um, to suggestions. I know, I know that'll be a really fascinating one for a lot of leaders globally, Kevin, because I, I was just, I had lunch with a very senior leader from DB Schenker the other day, and they confessed that I think it was 50% of their job is communication. And 80% of the time when something goes wrong, it is because of bad communication. And he said that he hadn't, he'd done a communication course a long time ago, but what I'm hearing from most leaders are they're, they're kind of left to working it out themselves and don't really have time to do more courses. So I, I, yeah, I think that would have a huge market. And I remember you also mentioned that you're looking at internal comms theory well, yes, um, it's back to the debate we've had here, but uh, you know, anything that leads into a more academic study around establishing good excellence uh, theory for internal communication. But just on the point of leaders, it reminded me, Monique, that um, for the, the leadership listening book uh, that you mentioned earlier, we asked um, someone in Canada to do some research for us, a lady called Elizabeth Williams, and um, she did some research on the top uh, university MBA courses across the world and also the top executive leadership development courses in the world. And she looked, all of those, I think it was the top 20 for in each category, 
and she went through and examined the syllabus for each course to see how far communication was embedded into the, those MBA programs or executive development programs. And not surprisingly, where it was included, the emphasis was very much on powerful presentations. There were very, very rare examples of what you would understand to be really you know, solid all round communication capabilities. So this is an issue because leaders are not being trained or developed to understand what good internal communication is. I think I'm going to use that as a quote for my book there, Kevin, and over to you, Mike. Well, I mean, I'm I'm involved in a number of things at the moment. You know, on the more commercial side, obviously, I'm focused on growing my training practice, growing my consulting practice, particularly around metrics, measurement, and strategy. But also another thing that I'm involved with that I actually launched a couple of years ago is the We Lead Comms Initiative, which recognizes courage, leadership, and initiative in among communication professionals and leaders. And we're going to reach the 7,500 follower mark by the time this podcast airs and really starting an, an exploration of how do we move this from being simply a celebration of courage, initiative, and leadership on a daily basis to actually creating a more robust conversation, perhaps in terms of events, perhaps in terms of more interactive community. And certainly some conversations are taking place in that regard, and I'm very interested in feedback. Finally, I've relaunched my own blog. It's called Changing the Terms, and it's at changingtheterms.com slash insights. So maybe our listeners can reach out to you, Mike, if they've got thoughts on that amplification of the We Lead comms and the next step beyond just celebrating to the knowledge sharing and events and the deeper connecting. Absolutely. And our leaders and also our listeners can reach out to you, Kevin, aside from saying hello and reading your research to also let you know about any interesting projects that they have available from autumn for you. Yeah, absolutely. Just find me on LinkedIn or at peeracademy.co.uk is the website. You can you can contact me there. Yeah, yeah. Be open to lots of thoughts on. I'm really looking forward to changing the focus of my research away from this thing, which I've spent the last three or four years doing with Mike and Howard. It's been really really interesting project. But it's you know now the book's done and dusted. Um, it's out later this year, hopefully uh, early next year. It's time to move on to a new topic. Sounds exciting. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Kevin, so much for your time. I really appreciate it. And thank you to our listeners. We are always open to your suggestions and ideas for topics and speakers. Thanks, Renee. Thank you. Thank you.